0: I'm seeing that a lot of editors or agents or whoever are saying that they don't connect with the voice, which is fine if it's if you're not the right editor for it. But I feel like a lot of a lot of underrepresented voices get passed on because the voice is not something that the editors are familiar with. And I think that it's a really involved problem. And and now I think we're seeing a change, especially in YA. I think YA is leading
1: the charge in a lot of ways um, where POC writers are doing extremely well and getting huge deals. Um, So part of it is, you know, as an agent, yes, I want to sign more POC marginalized writers because I think those voices do need to continue to be elevated. But also, you know, talent is talent. And so it's a fine line.
2: (music) listening to Chief Executive Auntie, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Dwan-Faltz. Booking my guests for this episode was another Twitter Hail Mary that I threw, which just goes to show that you never know what you'll get if you just fucking ask for it i've been trying to educate myself on the publishing process for a while now despite the notable handicap of not uh having a manuscript yet but oh well and after my year of only reading asian authors i thought well are there asian agents asian editors And in fact, there are. I discovered Jen Chen Tran and Jenny Chen around the same time and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to get them both on at the same time to talk about different phases of the publishing process. And so I added them on Twitter, inviting them to be on the pod, And they both said yes, like within an hour of each other. Uh, I didn't quite think through how tricky it would be to have three women named some variation of Jennifer talking at once, but here we are. Please welcome Jennifer Chen Tran of Bradford Literary Agency and Jenny Chen of Crooked Lane Books and Alcove Press. Thanks Thanks for having us. us. So, Jen, you're an agent and Jenny, you're an editor So if I had a book manuscript, who would I talk to first? Jen?
1: Well, it kind of depends on the path that you want to take, because I think one of the great things about publishing these days is that writers have many different options. And so if you didn't want to pursue the traditional path, um, I always recommend trying to secure an agent first. Um, there's many different reasons for that. We can go into that later, but if you want to pursue traditional publishing, I highly recommend that writers try to find an agent and query an agent first with their manuscript. Um, and that's because, you know, an agent is a business partner and really help you get the most value from your manuscript. And we look outside just the book as well. We also sell subsidiary rights, foreign film, TV. Um, so those are all things to take into account when you're going down the path of publication.
0: Uh, Jenny, do you take manuscripts without agents? I do. Um, actually, I've ended up uh, acquiring very many projects that um, either one, didn't start out with an agent or two, the author has decided um, to pursue publication without an agent even after um, a publisher has acquired it. Um, so I seem to have more experience in that department than um, most editors, I think, just from my conversations with some colleagues. Um and I don't think that there's any rhyme or reason for that. Um, I'm just really open to unsolicited submissions in addition to agency submissions.
2: Cool. So I guess let me back up for, for listeners who aren't as familiar with the publishing world. What do you actually do all day? I'm really curious um, for both of you, how much time you spend, you know, reading and responding to writers versus how much time you spend dealing with agents at, well, I guess vice versa for each of you, um, agents, editors, and others in the publishing industry. Um, Jen, what about you? So one of the
1: things I really love about my job is that every day is different and every week is different. So I'm doing a variety of things. So I currently have uh, almost 30 clients to my name and I've been agenting for, gosh, like six, close to seven years now. Um... And my, uh, the way that I kind of look at it is I'm an advisor. So I try to get the best investment for my clients. And whether that means getting to know editors and pitching projects to editors, um, my list is actually primarily nonfiction. So I, I would say I'm 60 40 nonfiction to fiction. And I do a lot of development work. So I will actually scout for talent. Um, I'm that person that follows too many people on Instagram that (laughs) I'm always looking on Instagram for talent because you never know who is interested in writing a book. Um, and then, you know, I'll work with clients to develop a really great book proposal. So I just want people to know that it's a lot more fluid than people think like, Yes, there are certain rules. Yes, there are certain guidelines that you should follow if you decide to pursue the traditional path. Um, But I think one of the great things about working with an agent is it is such a collaborative process, and I try to be as transparent as possible with my clients when I work with them on projects. So a typical day would look like meetings for me. I try to set up a lot of calls with editors, especially now that we're all working from home. Um, I try to close contracts. I will talk to our foreign rights agent about foreign rights. We'll talk marketing. So there's a lot of different Hats that I wear in the average day, and I think that's partially why I love the job so much, is there's so much variety to what I do.
0: Cool. What does a typical day look like for you, Jenny? Um, so I'll start by saying that I am an editor at a very small imprint. Um, and so when I got started, I had a finger in every pie, basically doing everything under the sun. So whereas, um, very large, um, our our big five publishers, right? Um, there are departments and then there are people within those departments to handle, um, very specific parts of the publication process. Um, but at Cricket Lane and at Alcove Press, um, it's, it's all, um, together. So I, um, you know, like Jen as an editor now, I also spend a lot of my time doing research on authors on the kinds of books that are out there, the marketplace, um, in addition to setting up calls with, um, agents and doing a little bit of like reading and editing, um, on the clock. Um, but it's a lot of, um, looking at, looking at everything else that happens for, for my books. Um, so that includes uh, reviewing the contracts that come in, um, looking at the covers and the jackets, um, making sure that production is going off smoothly, speaking with marketing and publicity about plans um, that are about to go off, ideas or like pitching my authors to um, media outlets um all the way through to sub-rights and then um, beyond publication. So it's it's pretty wild. And like Jen says, I didn't think that this goes for everyone in publishing. There is no standard day or week. It all gets pretty crazy. Um, and actually, I love that about being at Cricket Line specifically because um, there's just so much to do. You can't be bored.
2: <laughs> How do you stay organized, stay focused, stay... Especially now with home and work and (laughs) everything kind of blurring together.
0: I use a lot of post-its and to-do lists. um, And I've found that it's it's a lot more helpful to make long-term lists and then immediate lists. Um, for things that I want to get done within the day, within the week, within the month, within the year. Um, and so it's it's just a lot of trying to keep track that way. Deadlines are incredibly important. Um, actually, just this morning, I went to my boss and I was like, all right, here are three projects that I'm working on. Which one do you need first over all of the others? And I, And I think that getting those priorities straight is really important.
2: Jen, I know you're a parent as well as an agent. How do you juggle it all?
1: It's a struggle. I mean, I'm lucky that I have support. I have a nanny because I don't know how parents do it without help. My family lives on the East Coast. I I grew up in Long Island, New York, actually. And my entire family is on the East Coast. So I'm actually in Northern California. And it is a huge, not going to lie, the past several months especially have been a huge struggle. And just, you know, working from home with the little ones around, I, I luckily have a space that I can go outside my home and try to get away from all of the noise. So oh, I, I feel nice. very fortunate. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. So I'm really lucky in that respect. Um, but I just try to be very present with what I'm doing. And I also realize there are days that I just won't be able to get everything on my list done. And I have to be okay with that. And I I, luckily I have pretty understanding clients, but there is a lot of pressure in my job. I mean, I have to perform, I have to sell things, um, I have to please my clients. And so it is a struggle to deal with that and also um, try to be a mom sometimes too. (laughs) So it's tough. Um, And I know you have little ones too. So it can be Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it can be a struggle for sure. It's
2: it's quite a struggle. We yeah. we did not have any outside childcare from mm-hmm. March 15th until May 27th or something. That's when our yeah. sta- well, actually, no, the stay at home order was like in April or so- started in April or something here, right. and then. It was a long time. <laughs> it was months, a, long a long time. Long time. Um, and then we got, then we were able, once the stay at home order went up, we were able to get babysitters, but I was like, and I've worked from home for a long time and that's that's normal for me. But then my spouse came home and my child came home and I'm like, are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I live be. here now, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is my office too. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, How did your education, professional, personal experience prepare you for your current role? role? Jen, I know you used to be an attorney. Jenny, you've got um, bachelor's and master's in English literature, but is there like an agent major? No, I'm guessing there isn't like a, you can't major in agenting or editing.
1: Um, I'd love to hear from Jenny first because my story is
0: like super convoluted and and long-winded. So. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, to, I, I want to be super transparent about this. Publishing is not an industry um, that uh, that a lot of people know about. Um, so growing up and being as avid of a reader that I was, I still did not realize that publishing was a pursuable career path um, until I got to college. And I happened to just see a flyer for an open house at Penguin Random House. And I was like, there are publishers, of course, this is a thing. Um So after that, I tried to pursue, I tried to like focus on, uh, on publishing and what that meant overall. And that wasn't just English, but I tried to get, you know, some, um, some other experience in there as well. Um, but no, there are no courses like that. Um. More and more, there are um, degrees and programs for people who are interested in pursuing publishing. Um, Columbia has their publishing course. Um, NYU has a whole degree around publishing. Um, Hofstra as well out in Long Island has it now. Um, But beyond that, no, I just took, um, I I majored in English to read more and understand how to more um, clearly analyze literature. Um, But that was kind of it.
2: How about you, Jen? Let's hear your convoluted um, story. Yes, I, mean,
1: I totally agree with what Jenny is saying. Like it's kind of strange because I was also an English major, but we weren't we didn't really talk about publishing per se as a career path. And so this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but I never read the acknowledgment section in the back of any book. I always felt like that—that like, that was the Oscar speech for writers, and like who cares? <laughs> they're like thanking all their friends, right? Um, but had I read one, I think I would have realized. Well, there's actually a person called a literary agent. This is a career. Um, but yeah I was actually originally an art major believe it or not when I started college and my drawing professor gave me a C plus in drawing and I don't get C pluses so I left um, <laughs> and then I became an English major because I always enjoyed reading and stories um, and then I took some amazing poly sci classes with the general counsels of our university at the time and I was like hmm maybe law school like you know because I think in the back of every Asian kids mind I'm second generation like how do I please my parents. Um, And what else do I do with this degree? So I really didn't know. And honestly, I I just applied to law school on a whim because I really enjoyed my poli sci classes. And I caution anyone that wants to go to law school, don't apply to law school on a whim like I did. Uh, (laughs) And I got in and went into a huge amount of debt. I loved it. I loved my law school experience. I wouldn't change it for the world. But, you know, graduating in 08 at the height of the recession, There were no jobs unless you went to a top 30 law school. Um, So I went to Northeastern Law, which is known as as the most liberal law school in the country. And uh, I wanted to be a government attorney, but there just were no jobs at the time. And so the economy was so bad that there was a publisher called the New Press that created an of counsel volunteer position. Um, And even though it was actually created for big law associates, deferred big law associates that were told, Come back in a year, do something public interest oriented, volunteer, and then we'll tell you if you have a job. That's how bad it was. Um, So I applied, even though I didn't have big law experience, and I had some publishing experience from undergrad, luckily. And I did all their contracts and permissions for a year. And that's when I started talking to literary agents. Um, when I was negotiating contracts. And I was like, who are you? Like, what do you do? Um, and it turns out one of the alum from my law school actually started his own agency. So I, I ended up doing two non-paying volunteer positions at the same time to make a transition into publishing. This was around 2010, I believe. So it was, it was a lot. And uh, looking back now, I, I sometimes think, wow, if I if I knew how hard it was, maybe I wouldn't have done it. But I think in a way, because I was still young and and green, I didn't really know all the ins and outs. It seemed really exciting at the time. And here I am, uh, you know,
2: many years later still doing that. So, yeah, that's my story. (laughs) Great recession, graduates. (laughs) (laughs) woohoo! I finished my master's in education in 2010. Oh, wow. And and education is – recovers slower than everything else. So, I was like, this is fine. But – Class of 2020, pandemic graduates is gonna be okay. I promise it's gonna be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like the second, third major world catastrophe in my lifetime. It's fine. It's fine. Everything. We'll all survive somehow. We'll all go through it, I think. So. Yeah. And I too was not English. I had two majors. I majored in English lit. And molecular genetics to make parents, to make my parents happy. I also I wanted I knew I wanted to be a science teacher too. So um, I just didn't want to take anatomy or entomology. So I chose <laughs> genetics, um, and then I took the English major because I was like, I don't want to stop reading books. And I wish I had known that publishing and agenting and editing, like I wish I had known that those were options because. And though those were not presented to me. It was like, okay, you can get an English major and you can go get a PhD in English. I'm like, I'm not gonna get a PhD in English.
0: <laughs> so I wish yeah. I would talk about that more in in undergrad. Yeah, so I actually I want to add on to that because I uh, also um, so I I also have a very long story about how I got to the school that I went to, but um uh, long story short, I went in as a legal studies major again to please. My parents who were like, what are you, you going to do? You like to read. So just read law books. And I was like, that's not the same dad. It's very <laughs> uninteresting. Cause I read crime fiction. Um, and it's just a lot of fun and law books are boring and dull, but, um, so I went there, and then 15 minutes into my first law class, I was like, "This is not it." And I actually saw my flyer on the way to change my major. Um, and funnily enough, after coming home the very first day, my mom was like, "So what's your major again?" Like as if she like knew um, that I had. Ch- so anyway, um, <laughs> what I what I want to say is that, um. Publishing does not require um, an English degree, and it also uh, allows for very many people to enter publishing from a variety of paths. Um, the one problem is that it's just not widely um, broadcasted, that publishing is even a thing. So even though I have English lit degrees, um, both bachelor's and master's, one, my master's is definitely not required. I got that from my parents. It was paid for. Like, It just seems like a really easy thing. Um, but when I was speaking with HR folks at Big Five Publishing Houses, they actually said to me, don't get a master's, just come and work for us mm-hmm. um, because you actually learn way more on the job about publishing than you do in school. Um, and one of the gripes that I had about being in school was that a lot of it was very theoretical and sure, it helps with critical thinking and it helps with analysis and it helps you better relate and interact with the text. Um but I learned way more from all of my internships um, at, at publishing houses and at agencies to do my job better than I, than I um, learned from being in school. So that I makes totally it- agree. Oh, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the apprenticeship model that,
1: um, I think for a large part of publishing still that kind of follows this model. Um, internships are a great way to get your foot in the door. And yeah, sometimes you might have to do one or two or more um, non-paying internships to kind of get your foot in the door because publishing is a smaller industry. It's fairly competitive. Um, so I think that do whatever you can to broaden your reach, broaden your network, because especially if you're young to publishing, those initial relationships are going to be so important. And honestly, like I don't know if I'd be an agent right now if it wasn't for the alum, uh, you know, alumnus from my law school that gave me a shot and, and basically was like, read this manuscript and you can come intern for me. So um, I think it's hugely important actually as people of color, especially in an industry where we're underrepresented still to this day um, to help others through the pipeline as well. And so um, when I, when I do hire interns and first readers for my internship position, I do try to be cognizant of that as something to keep in mind too.
2: Yeah, um, I think, yeah, it was Celeste Ng who has the, who did the We Need Diverse Books grant. And I was like, I talked to her in March um, when Little Fires Everywhere was supposed to have this big like red carpet release and didn't, (laughs) but I still got to talk to her and we were talking about that. And I was like, yes, we need, you know, I, it's interesting that Jenny, that like you said, you know, you don't need a master's degree. You don't need, do you need a degree to get into publishing?
0: Yes, for entry level, they would prefer that you have a degree or, you know, a lot of applications say, or four years equivalent experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that piece seems like, oh, it's
2: like level playing field, but the unpaid internship part makes it a very not level playing field because like, who can afford to do that?
0: Not everybody. Exactly. Not only that, but um, entry level, um, entry level jobs have... A very high bar for the people that they accept. So even though it's entry level, these people are already looking for um, for candidates who have a wealth of experience under their belts. So it's incredibly hard to get your foot in the door. I was I was chosen for some reason for my very first internship, um, <laughs> and I was totally shocked. But what I will say is that I tried to make my resume look as robust as possible. So I had a lot of. Um, volunteering at library experience, and I had worked at Barnes Noble, and at, in college um, I was a writing consultant. And so, while those aren't publishing experiences, I try to make them seem like they were publishing experiences. And I'm just going to say that they help somehow.
2: <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I've switched jobs numerous times throughout the last ten years, and. I think I'm, I must be pretty good at like spinning my, my previous experience into a different field because I've never not been able to get a job when I wanted one. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. How have your, each of you, again, individually, how have your tastes and preferences and books that you choose, how has that evolved throughout your career? And then kind of secondary to that, how much of your decisions are like based on personal, like personal reasons or personal things that you like about it? And how much of it is in in response to, quote unquote, the market, whatever that means?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm a Gemini, so I'm still figuring it out, honestly. Like, um, I think my, my list has skewed toward nonfiction over the years only because I've I'm finding nonfiction easier to sell than fiction um, so in terms of the market just for some reason um, my nonfiction titles have sold quickly and easily fiction's been hard um, you know I've, I've toyed with the idea of closing to women's fiction for a while and and just focusing on nonfiction at the moment um, but I think at the end of the day if you really love it at least for me, I have to love it because it's the kind of project that may not sell after a year of more submission. Um, In fact, I just sold an art book project um, that I had on sub for two years. Um, So it's the kind of thing that I really have to love it. Otherwise it's not worth my time. Um, So, and, and that's just something that, It's kind of, if I see it, I know it, and I feel it kind of thing. So a lot of it is intuitive. Um, And then some of it is very left brain, like, especially with dealing with nonfiction, like looking at the numbers, making sure the platform is there, and doing all that sort of analysis. But at the heart of it, if I don't fall in love with it, then I just can't see myself sticking with it, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as an agent, you don't get paid until you sell a book, right? Right.
1: We don't get paid unless we sell the book. Wow. So it's, it's in a way, um, a nice way to align our interests with the, the author's interests, too, because we're their, we're their advocate, and we only do as well as our clients do. I always tell, remind my clients, like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So um, in that sense, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense that our interests are aligned and that we feel the same way about the work that the author does. You know, they're really excited about it. We're really excited about it, and then hopefully we can convey that enthusiasm to an editor too. Yeah,
0: Jenny, how about you? Um, I think that I'm in an interesting position because I know that very many editors um, are working in in genres that they don't necessarily read for pleasure. And I always get asked, okay, so this is what you do for a living. What about the books that you read? And actually, it's really one-to-one. I grew up reading crime fiction and book club fiction, um, and crime fiction was my very first love. Um, And entering publishing, that's all I knew, and so I really wanted to work at uh, an imprint that did crime fiction. Um, a few years into it, I, you know, would co- constantly get cautioned and um, be told that I wouldn't find a way to compartmentalize, that I would be burned out reading crime fiction, that I would read crime fiction with an editor's hat on. And to so that, I'd say a little bit. It's been about four years now, um, and. Um, I I, th- I find it really hard to take my editor hat off when I read crime fiction for fun, but um, I still really love it. I mean, it, crime fiction just like there's an element to it that shocks you constantly, and if you can't be shocked, then you're not having then you're not having a fun time. Um, and I think that the same goes for book club fiction because you can really explore a variety of of issues and topics um in those sorts of books um as for the marketplace question i'd have to agree with jen that i've got to love 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 it because i have to constantly read this book over and over and over again and after five or six reads if i don't love it then that's something that's that's something's gone wrong Um, and I would need to continue to stay passionate about it even beyond editing. Um, so I would caution against anyone who's looking to... And and the desire can be strong, right? Um, what I will say is that when I was very early, when it was earlier in my career and I needed to acquire projects just to show my boss that I could acquire projects, I was definitely lured by the idea of bring projects in that I knew were fit for the marketplace Um, that were really strong projects. Um, But in hindsight, like, it's, it's harder to feel passionate about a project that you know that other readers are going to love, but then you don't, it feels like you're not doing right by that project. Um, Even though they've done really well and all of that stuff. So
2: I know you've both expressed interest in representing diverse writers and stories. And with the recent kerfuffle at the Hugos, shall we say, (laughs) Um, and also conversations about whether Own Voices is actually useful for authors. Um, How do you think we can do better in acquiring and publishing stories written by inclusive voices? I know that's a big question. (laughs) Solve it right now. It's a big question, but I think
1: it's still a really important question that you know, editors and agents ask themselves all the time. um, You know, I think we've gotten to the point where we really have to ask a question, like, even in fiction, like, is this the right person to tell the story? So if we have a Caucasian writer writing about marginalized communities, there's nothing per se wrong with that. Um, But we just want to make sure as an agent, as an agency, like they did their homework and they're, they're very sensitive to, you know, representing that community correctly. Now, that said, um, I also am very cognizant like, you know, POC marginalized people have not gotten as much press as they would have um, in the past. And and now I think we're seeing a change, especially in YA. I think YA is leading the charge mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um, where POC writers are doing extremely well and getting huge deals. Um, So part of it is, you know, as an agent, yes, I want to sign more POC marginalized writers because I think those voices do need to continue to be elevated. Um, But also, you know, talent is talent. And so it's a fine line. Um, And I I do cringe, though, when I get queries written by, you know, non-marginalized people that... I got a query the other day and it was written by, I think, two Caucasian women wanting to use an Asian American pen name to write a main character who was, I believe, Japanese or Chinese uh, descent, which kind of made me cringe, honestly. Like, I was like, really? Really? We're all cringing really? with you. <laughs> yeah. So that was a little bit like I was. I was like, I'm not sure. Like, I'll read it, but I don't think this is right for me. Maybe some other agent. But um, yeah, it kind of made me cringe a little bit. I'm not gonna lie.
2: I've always wondered, like, if I publish a book, like, am I gonna use my because my, my married name is not Asian sounding, right? Like, do I use that? Do I not use that? And I don't think I'm not sure. I don't know what I'm gonna do. But yeah, yeah the opposite way seems much worse <laughs> yeah it just seems a little disingenuous
1: and i think especially now people want to get to know the writers a little bit more and who's behind the story so i think um yeah it's not it's not the best idea to masquerade as another culture using a pen name I, I would caution against that but anyway i'd love to hear what jenny thinks though from the editor's perspective
0: um absolutely i think that those are red flags right um Right away, um, if I see that you know a person is trying to go under a pen name or trying to write about um, a marginalized community without having that experience um, it's It's almost an automatic no for me um, because I feel like there are other people who can tell that story probably better. Um, in terms of doing better in the industry, I think that everyone. One, I think that we need to get rid of quotas. Um, I've been hearing a lot about how, oh, we already have a black, uh, you know, rom com on our list. We don't need any more. Or, oh yeah, we already have a like World War II Asian American novel. We don't need another one of those. And yet, there are like seventy six hundred thousand World War II like Nazi books. Um, even ones about like where where there's like you know, Nazi sympathy. And I'm like, why do we need more of these? Why is this important for our (laughs) culture? Um, So to that, I'll say like one, getting rid of quotas is incredibly important. And then trying to understand that readers are hungry for these novels, for these stories to be told is another part of it. Um, You know, I'm I'm seeing that a lot of uh, editors or agents or whoever are saying that they don't connect with the voice, um, which is fine if it's, if you're not the right editor for it, but I feel like a lot of, um, a lot of underrepresented voices get passed on because the voice is not, um, something that the editors are familiar with. And I think that it's a really involved problem. It goes to people who are in publishing. Um, and I think that, you know, why the marketplace looks the way that it does is because there aren't enough diverse gatekeepers, um, within publishing itself. Um, and there's a, there are a whole other reasons for that as well. Um, there's no reason to get too deep into that. It's all very insidious. Um, but I, I would just say that, um, you know, keeping an eye out on, um, grants on, um, writers groups and, um, you know, uh, HitMad and DV pit have done a really good job of bringing those voices to the forefront. It's why I got onto Twitter, um, and I think just being more open to those stories is, is really going to help.
2: Beth Phelan, if you're listening to this, I want to interview you as well. <laughs> <laughs> She's, She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we wrap up, what advice would you give to other Amazing <laughs> <Amazian> Asians, Asian Americans <laughs> uh, who want to do what you do?
1: I think uh, just overcome your fear because I think a lot of, you know, as Asian Americans, we're told to follow a certain path. And I think um, it's good intentions. Like our parents want us to do well and they want us not to have to worry about money and have security and maybe some of the things that they didn't have. And I think a lot of it is fear, like making that leap into the unknown and just kind of charting your own path. Um, I will say that you know, i I recently joined or was invited to the Asian American Asian Hustle Network I think it's like fifty thousand Asian hustlers on there and it's just amazing to see everyone's stories and paths and that, how they kind of um you know chose their own destiny and I think as an industry like it really starts with us like people like Jenny um, editors like Jenny and agents like you know Penny Moore is another example of an amazing agent she started the Lit Agents of Color um, page, you know, and so she highlights POC. It starts with us because I came across a, a used um, literary agents directory from about 20 years ago in a used bookstore, and I was just curious, and I leafed through it, and I think 95% of the agents on that list were Caucasian or white. So the fact that we've made so much progress in a few 20 years or so, you know, I think it really we have a responsibility to bring up people through the pipeline uh, and help continue to make publishing more diverse and welcoming for POC and marginalized people. So yeah, it's on us for sure.
0: Certainly. I think, um, we have a hand in hiring and, and bringing in more of those voices. What, um, I think I have two pieces of advice. Um, One for those who are looking to enter publishing and then one for those who are currently in publishing. Um, So for those who are looking to get into publishing, um, go for it. (laughs) Um, I'll say that I was really lucky in that my parents weren't the stereotypical, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer. Um, they just wanted me to be happy and they realized that publishing made me really happy and they were really okay with that. Um, I didn't have to fight for it at all. Um, my my brother's in like, he just graduated med school and all along the way, they saw how tired that my brother was and they're like, quit med school, do something else. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I love my parents for that. Um, what I will say is that it's hard. I think that you should be an advocate for yourself. Um, I, I'm going to lean on a stereotype here. Um, it was true for me um, in that I'm kind of, um, I'm really willing to serve Um, And so there's like no limit to what I mean, I I would do, I would have done a lot to get into publishing, you know, like, if you want me to be your personal assistant, like, I will get you coffee, like, I will do this, I will do that. It really didn't matter to me as long as I had a seat in publishing. Um, And that was my mentality going into it, because that's just kind of how my entire family works. Like we're really big doers. um, And that I think that's helped in some ways, but on the other hand, you can totally get taken advantage of in publishing. I'm lucky that I was not, um, that actually my like white male boss stood up for me way more times than I did for myself. Um, but I think in order, to, in order to stay in publishing, to rise in publishing, you have to know what you are worth, constantly set your goals for yourself, make sure that you're having meetings with your boss to make sure that those goals are being met, that you have the tools and support. That you need to make that happen for yourself um, and for those who are currently in publishing, burnout is a very big problem, especially for um, you know for those of us who are not you know cis white um, agents and editors uh, or whoever else is in publishing um, and I think it's important to find our community, find the people who um, will support you and um oh gosh, I had something else, but, um, I I think continuing to be an advocate for yourself is also really important here.
2: Well, thank you both so much for your time today. Uh, where can people find you online? You can just Google me.
1: I, I hyphenated my last name because I actually ran into a Jennifer Chen when I was in college and I got her mail all the time. So I was like, I'm going to put an end to this and hyphenate my name. Um, I use I don't use the hyphen just to confuse everyone but uh, you can just search for Jennifer tanttrant or go to the Bradford literary website under um, our team tab I have a bio I am hopefully reopening to queries at the beginning of September we'll see um, but yeah I'm just really grateful to even be part of the community where we can talk about these sort of issues um, and uh, Jenny has fantastic taste and I'm hoping to pitch her again on another project soon so I'm really pleased yeah. Um and I'm just I, I just think everything that you guys said about just standing up for yourself, it is really important because if you don't speak up for yourself, who's gonna help you? So, you know, just being in the right environment with the right team and the right colleagues and surrounding yourself with positive people is so important. So
0: Yes. So um, you can't Google me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, I was, I, I believe the 13th Jenny Chen in my school district when I was growing up. And, um, mm. and there's a story about one summer where another Jenny Chen took my summer camp spot because she got there first and we both got the same letter. And no! anyway, so <laughs> there are way too many Jenny Chens out there in this world. There's no way you can find me. Um, and you'll notice that my Twitter handle repeats my name because it's Jenny Chen under. JC because Jenny Chen is just taken by a whole bunch of other people. You can't (laughs) add numbers, you can't add symbols, it's impossible. Um, Part of me loves that invisibility. The other part is like, how do I get people to find me if they want to? Um, So, cricketlingbooks.com or alcovepress.com are good ways to find me in my bio, Um, but I'm also really active on Twitter. So, my handle is repeating that again Jenny Chen underscore JC.
2: All right. And I will link all of those in the show notes. Thank you both again so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Chief Executive Auntie. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe with your favorite podcast player and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out about the show and provides the external motivation I need to keep going. You can find show notes, links, and other resources at chiefexecutiveante.com. That's chiefexecutive, A-U-N-T-I-E, dot com. Special thanks to Sue Ann Shaw for mixing and mastering this episode, composing the music, and generally being a good human. Alyssa De La Rosa for creating the branding, and my distribution partner, Mochi Magazine. See you next time.